4: Cook having drawn two defenders in Jordan 9, Steve Cook sees the headlines, drives it for goal, spilt, and that
3: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Lockdown Interviews. My name's Sam Davis, this is Back in the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. In just seven days' time, we reconvene with Premier League football in our match against Crystal Palace. Looks like we've got a fully fit squad, Ryan Fraser. Doesn't look like he'll be involved. Oh well, um, but we cannot wait. Live on the BBC, mooted to be one of the highest viewed Premier League matches of all time. Of course, the Premier League starts before that on Wednesday and it'll be really interesting to see how it all looks on TV but yeah we've got some vital matches and hopefully we can get as many three points in the bag as we possibly can in our nine remaining games. Now on today's show we've got a media perspective of all things AFC Bournemouth including Chris Temple who of course is the main commentator for BBC Radio Solent also on South Today but these days his work is global, as he's stadium announcer at many key events across the globe. He would have been at the Euros this year and the Olympics. I'm sure he's got a busy schedule next year because of that. But he's also at Wembley as well, doing the stadium announcements there as well. So looking for, to fall forward to hearing his views. Also, we got Peter Rutzler, the AFC Bournemouth correspondent from The Athletic. And he has brought a number of key stories to the fo- fore in recent once over lockdown, including the AFC Bournemouth youth host story and mentions about the training ground recently, the fact that it's been paused because of coronavirus. Great to hear his take on things. And also Kelly Summers as well. Now, she used to work at the club, but these days is doing stuff for Optus Sport in Australia, BBC Sport, Premier League Productions and much more besides. So we ask her too about all things AFCP.
4: Chris Temple, how are you doing, Sam? I'm good, thank you. It's funny that commentary actually, uh, because Bill Leslie on Sky came out with the great line of "That'll do it," which you play on in your intro to this uh, this vodcast, if you like. Um, yeah. Thankfully, mine gets forgotten because I didn't really have a, a a line, if you like. But it was, <laughs> yeah, that's a very memorable night, of course. And also, we've got
3: Kelly Summers here. Kelly, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Sam, good to see you. I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Hope um, you're both well. We've got. Can we have an early mention for Chris's hair? Because yeah. that is one of the most impressive lockdown hairdos I've seen. He's so... Sl-
4: Unbelievable.
1: He's so cool. slick, I'm just impressed it's kind of carried on going up. Yeah, it's good.
4: I had to do... I've done a temporary job on the sides myself, actually, I must admit. I've got no oh, one yeah. to do it for me, so it's real emergency stuff. It'll go very well with that Elvis costume that you got hidden away somewhere, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> it
2: will, it will.
3: <laughs> also, we've got uh, Peter Rutzler from The Athletic here as well. Peter, how
2: you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, struggling with the hair as well, but uh, I'm <laughs> happy that we're talking about Chris early doors, so stick <laughs> with
3: that. I'm lacking a distinct, uh, you know, lack of hair products there, Peter, whereas Chris <laughs> can only dream of having hair like yours. So uh, no, very well done. So, Chris, in terms of uh, longevity with the club, you've been there obviously the longest. Uh, your association with the club started back in 2002. Um, let's just talk about recently. How have you been doing these last sort of, you know, two months and a half?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, as a a freelancer these days, um, a lot of, and I've read it, I've read a lot of comments from sort of people in similar positions. I'm a freelancer who works for myself. I work for obviously Solent as, you know, two days a week. So, I would say I'm missing the solar lads, but not really. Um, but, you know, it's, it's you're one of those things where you're sort of self-sufficient. So I spend a lot of time on my own. I spend a lot of time traveling on my own. Uh, I'm very comfortable in my own company. I actually quite enjoy my own company. I, I like sort of doing my own thing. So I've got to say that for me, I haven't really struggled with lockdown as a, as a sort of premise that much. Um, obviously, hugely missing sport and you know, yesterday should have been the cup final, which I would have been working at. Today, I would have been working at a, mm. a running event in Manchester with 40,000 people. So I think it's when the dates come and your diary. I try not to look in my diary because everything's crossed out. <laughs> and actually, you keep seeing things on social media, thinking I should be here, I should be here. So mm. that's when it does get a bit frustrating to be honest with you.
3: Yeah, because from Kelly, I, I keep seeing you popping up on TV and social media. Uh, it, it's fair to say this um, kind of break has given you a unique opportunity to chat to a number of sporting greats from your home. Yes. How amazing! Yeah,
1: that yeah, I was I was confused as what you meant then, but yeah, now I was thinking, have I because I feel like I haven't done that much work. Um, it's been yeah. I spoke I spoke to Eddie Howe. That's probably who you're referring to as sporting mm-hmm. great. <laughs> um, I work for Premier League Productions, so a lot of people I'm sure with Bournemouth. Having been in the Premier League for a few years now, I'll be pretty familiar with what it is. Um, It's just a global uh, platform and channel service, I think it's called, um, for Premier League's overseas rights holders to get content. So I work for them. I present programmes from them and we're presenting from home. I've kind of got some of my camera equipment over there ready to go for tomorrow morning. Uh, But also doing interviews, the mandatory interviews via Skype, one of which was with Eddie. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was nice. He still did it nice and early in the morning. Chris will know all about his love of early morning press. presses. It was nine o'clock on a Monday morning, just getting me up. Um, but it was <laughs> nice. We went out. We looked at his five favourite games in the Premier League since promotion. So it was a nice little trip down memory lane.
3: Yeah, good stuff. Uh, I had a comment from James Roode, Chris, that you might want to
4: see. Not seeing any grey gray hairs. Uh, if you're <laughs> What's, in there. Look at all
1: this. What's all
4: that? Look there. Blimey. I've cut most of them off. That's why the sides always stay short, because it gets grey around the sides.
3: And uh, Kelly, we've had a few messages for you as well. You know, great to see your progress too. Uh, That was from Ben. So thanks, Ben, for your comment. And and we'll be flashing some comments throughout the the show. So if you want to leave your remarks, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, then please send them in and we'll get them on screen. Um, Also, Peter, um, we've chatted to you about how challenging it's been for sports writers to create engaging stories when there's no football to go with it. Uh, One of the pieces I really liked from you was the match day experience and the things that people are missing and it made me miss like so much about it um we've all been feeling the burn haven't we uh, through lack of football
2: yeah no, absolutely I think we've got Chris to comment on that one as well so um yeah those are the kind of things you're, you're trying to do to, to fill the time and to be honest I'm, I'm lucky in a sense I mean it, it is a tough environment at the moment and you know I'm still able to work I'm still working full-time it's just trying to be more creative and, and think of things in, in, in a different way so yeah what we're missing about Bournemouth is a, is a was a good one to do and just trying to get interviews like you're doing and, and that sort of thing so so far so good it's just it, you said two and a half months at the start it's like wow I can't believe it's that long you know, it just, mm. just seems to go on
3: yeah the interviews we've it's been great you know as someone independent, uh, we're never going to have the chance to do this regularly. So in a way, it's been a sort of blessing in disguise to be able to chat to um, so many greats, uh, whether they're sort of media types like yourselves or former players, uh, former managers like Harry Redknapp last weekend. He was hilarious. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Um, But as I sort of said at the start of the show, we're going to try to focus on AFC Bournemouth. Uh, Whilst today's announcement from the club uh, provides a lot to talk about, we'll park that conversation uh, for tomorrow. So um, we're going to go in sort of Chronological order where we can, and we'll talk about um, how you each got your sort of career breaks in the media. So, um, this was a question from Dan Lurie Was sports journalism always your goal, Chris?
4: Uh, Well, my dad was an athletics, uh, he was a newspaper writer actually, he was an athletics correspondent of the Sunday Times, so the the sort of sports media side of it was there, I used to write reports of my football matches when I was younger, and like get my dad to say he was going to send them into the Sunday Times, which obviously he said he did, but he never did. Um, But in terms of radio, I sort of got into the classic student radio side of things, and then um, I was actually working at the University of Surrey in Guildford, and the BBC uh, what is now BBC Surrey, their, their studios are on the campus in Guildford. Um, and I remember uh, writing to them saying, I'm working around the corner. Can I come and see what you do? Maybe go out to a non-league game. And back then it was there wasn't quite as much demand for or not quite as many people interested. So to be fair, the sports editor then, who's still the sports editor now, Tim Durrens, um, allowed me to go to an Aldershot game. I actually worked for BBC Surrey before I worked for BBC Solent. Uh, because I lived down in the Solent region, down in sort of Winchester area at the time, uh, I ended up writing to Solent as well, sort of uh, covering all bases, and they offered me a game as well. So actually, I ended up doing a few non-league games, and then um, my my big break, in inverted commas, was when I got a call on a Friday night um, saying our Bournemouth commentator tomorrow can't go to Berry. can you go? But I've never <laughs> never done a commentary before in my life. And I said, well, if you're happy to give me a go, I'll give you a go. So Bury away. Obviously, the sad demise of Barry recently sort of lost a bit of history for me as well. I did that game and that was my first one in February 2002. And I suppose I must have done okay because they asked me back next week as well.
3: Yeah. And 18 years later, you're still hanging about. Uh, what yeah. about yourself, Kelly? <laughs>
1: um, mine's a bit different. I kind of was growing up. My mum was really into football and had a season to get out of Watford. I'm sure many people know uh, Watford and my hometown club, the team I've supported my whole life. But um, my mum went and I wasn't really that interested. And then Watford got to the playoff final in 98, 99. And um, there was actually a brilliant article, some brilliant articles going around last night. And it actually was quite timely because I was reminiscing about it. I begged to go because everyone at school was going. So my mum kind of reluctantly, I mean, probably 50, 60 quid, a ticket, whatever it was, took me. And she says she can remember the moment I walked out. I was absolutely hooked. Watford won, got promoted to the Premier League, only lasted a year that time, um, as they did um, on two occasions prior to now in my lifetime. And um, I just got really into football. And then I won a competition a year later to so go in the press box at Watford. And that was probably the first time I was like, hold on, I can do this for a living. And then basically just chased it there from there on in. And I went to uni to Sports science somehow managed to was allowed to do my dissertation on the impact of social media on football clubs not really sure how that links into sport science but I made loads of contacts and off the back of that was introduced to the guys at Bournemouth then and the rest as they say is history got a job at Bournemouth and haven't really looked back been very fortunate.
3: Has uh, doing stuff on the sort of audio visual side Peter ever appealed to you or has written stuff always been your thing?
2: Do you know what? I was just thinking that because I actually, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a commentator. I wanted to do what uh, Chris did. And I, I think I wrote to John Watson when I was about 10, just saying, well, h- how do I do it? How do I get involved? And he came back and said, right, you need to get work experience with your local paper. And so I thought, okay, I'll try that. And I, I, I then decided rather than the local paper, I'll try and write to the Nationals, write to the Nationals, got a letter back saying, I'm sorry, you're not going to get any work experience from us. So I did keep all the letters in a nice little pile. Um, so that was quite early for me. And then similar to the guys, really, i, I always knew I wanted to to go into sports journalism I think I wanted to combine it with writing because I always enjoyed it at school um enjoyed my English lessons my history lessons as well and I wanted to combine that with football because football was everything to me so I just thought that was the best way forward did a lot of blog writing doing a lot of stuff for free um at university I did do some radio actually I did do some commentary um not very good evidently otherwise I'd be going (laughs) on a different trajectory but um it was just from there, really, from university stuff, that was my, my journalism course actually really opened doors for me. I mean, I, I did some stuff uh, for get, get French Football News, which is that uh, French football site, the French football right. side of it. And I thought, well, if I want to get in. I need to have a niche. I need to have mm. something that's going to help me stand out. And when I did my journalism course, um, like a year-long sort of postgraduate diploma sort of thing, um, it was through that where I did my placement at the I newspaper, who were great. And I said, look, I have this background, this knowledge of French football. I, I do a podcast every week, a chat about it. Would you be interested in this? And Neymar had just signed, so it became quite relevant. And I think I did an interview with Marseille's assistant manager. And from there, you get a couple of bylines and then you start building a portfolio. And the I were really good for me, actually. They, were, they definitely opened doors and, and helped me build a portfolio and took a chance on me. I think the first things I did with them were, the fan matrix, which is like so, the you know, like the up- the cherries fan forum. I go through forums and just compile them for a page they do every week. So that was basically it. And then from there, I, I've got one or two more bylines, and then they they sent me to a couple of games. Uh, covered a couple Wimbledon as well, quite quickly, which is incredible. It's such a good press day out. Such mm-hmm. a good press day Food, incredible. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, from there, it helped me build a big enough portfolio, and I got onto the the male's grad scheme. So that's, yeah, that's that was sort of my fast track from there, really.
3: So, Chris, when you got your foot in the door at AFC Bournemouth in two thousand and two, um, obviously, you know, you did a good job, but the state of the club was a lot different to what it is now, isn't it?
4: <laughs> Uh, the state of the interviews were a lot different as well, because it was Sean O'Driscoll back in the day, which uh, oh was, I mean, to be back. fair, I've, I've said many cool. times before to people that actually I couldn't have had a better grounding as a as a sort of young, inexperienced reporter. I'd never really done post-match football interviews of, of any regularity before. Um, and Sean was such a great, you know, with the greatest of respect to him, he was such a great learning curve for me because he was a nightmare. Um, mm. You know, one, one week you'd, you'd think you'd cracked him and he'd give you sort of relatively long answers or enthusiastic answers as far as, Sean could be enthusiastic, but he just didn't like doing it. And some weeks, you know, if they had a bad result, um, one away at Brentford sticks in my mind where they'd lost and Neil Young got sent off for booting someone up in the air. Stephen Hunt, I think it was. Um, and Sean was just giving one-line answers afterwards and sort of throwing it back at me. And that was – it's one interview that's always stuck in my mind is – one of the most difficult Um, and that's why you know as Pete and and Kelly will know dealing with Eddie these days even if he's in a bad mood he'll he'll give you you know respectable shorter answers if he's not in a great mood but it'll always give you respectable answers but as a as a young reporter um, dealing with Sean every week was was a real challenge and And very good. My biggest other challenge was trying to get a word in on the radio because Steve Fletcher was my co-commentator for most of my early days because he was always injured. So he would turn up at five to three, wear the headphones around the back of his head so he didn't mess his hair up. Um, uh, And yeah, he was I couldn't shut him up. So for the first couple of years, I had to deal with him.
3: Oh, wow. That must have been special. We'll talk about Willow <laughs> and um, his introduction. Well, when you started your, you know, double act, you're like the Anton Deck of commentary. <laughs> <laughs>
4: He's a hand deck. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: but, um, so, Kelly, I mean, you, you joined in sort of 2012, as you said, when that was the same season that Eddie returned. But was Paul Groves, man- in, was he manager at the time?
1: Yeah. I was... Um some other half smacks who used to work at the club. I'm not sure if people will be aware of that. And we were talking about it just before because obviously he's seen even more than I have. Um, and he said to me, he said, what was the timescale? I've kind of forgotten. I joined at the very beginning of October, 2012 and was kind of told, Paul Gross was in charge. But I was told, don't worry. You've just moved your whole life down from Watford. It's okay. It's just a bit of a tricky time. We're all going for promotion. It's a little bit tricky and I'd never worked in a football club before. So probably it was quite good because I didn't know what to expect But yeah, um, Paul Groves was sacked on the Wednesday. I started on the Monday Um, and then it was like, wow, we haven't got a manager. This is going to be interesting. I thought we were going to get promoted. Eddie then came back a week on Saturday and it's something I did an interview recently with someone else. And I said, I didn't realise the magnitude then of Eddie coming back. I obviously did my research. I knew what he'd done for the club, but only there was just so much excitement around the club and only... Now I look back to I completely understand and obviously what he's gone on to do at the club, why it was such a big deal. But yeah, it was I've been very, very fortunate because I was at the club for four years, virtually Mm. was just shy of four years. And first year obviously went on to get promotion, championship club record finish promotion a year in the Premier League. So when I say I look back on my time at Bournemouth very, very fondly. Yeah, it's a bit of it's pinch yourself stuff. It was an incredible four years.
3: We had a question for you from Sophie actually Kelly, who said, uh, "How did the media department train a uh, change stroke adapt to AFC Bournemouth's rise?"
1: This was another one where I was having to think. Gosh, how how did we? Because it always felt like there was we were such a tight team. Chris, or well, Chris will know. of how the media department's gone from even longer really because we used to work so closely with chris the amount of times chris would do our interviews for us particularly because a we didn't want to put more pressure on the players and b there wasn't really enough of us to kind of Mm. get people to interviews and stuff so when i started um there was just three of us that was league one um and i was trying to remember this exactly because it all does kind of blur when we went to the championship we went to four And then I think when we went to the Premier League, because we would do a little bit of everything. And that was why the job was so, so good for me, because I came in and I got to do everything. I was either taking people to the likes of Chris, taking players to get them to do the interviews, or I was doing the interviews. And that was what was such a good grounding for me, because I got to do everything. I was doing the interviews, taking players to interviews, editing the interviews, publishing the interviews, Typing up the quotes from the interviews—that was how we worked, and it was incredible grounding for someone fresh out of uni. But then so we went—I think it was five of us in the championship—and then I think, and I really hope I'm not doing anyone a disservice, anyone that we employed and I've completely forgotten—I mm-hmm. think we got two more. I think Jordan and George—that only means something it's Chris really—came in. We kind of got a specialist to come in and do the written, specialist to come in and do video. Um, So it then meant myself and Alex, who was also in the department time, could specialise a little bit more as well. But there was still so much to do. And Chris, how many of them, how many are in the department now? About Mm. 10, would you say?
4: Yeah, it's probably about 10. 10. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, but that you, now I'm on the other side and... Chris again will see this and I'm sure Peter's seen it different clubs have you've seen the top clubs with massive media teams and some probably the smaller ones can probably operate on seven or eight but it's one of those things that you could probably they probably have 10 and still feel like they could have more there's always more you can do in the media department that's kind of the beauty of it really.
3: Yeah. And so what, in, in League One, there were just three people doing well, everything?
1: Yeah, when, when I joined, um, so Max was head of the department. Um, I came in to just kind of, as I said, do a, bits of everything. I was just a media assistant. Um, and then Mick Cunningham was there at the time as well.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and then a year later, Alex Smith, um, he, he'd been there before me, but was at uni and kind of, so I think, I can't remember exactly. There was a period where he went away and then came back again. Honestly, it wasn't even, it was quite a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. I should be able to remember, but I can't remember the exact timings. Basically, we were at three um, until we got to the Premier League. And three in the Championship was tough, mainly because of the sheer number of games and the travelling, which, again, you guys will completely understand from doing it, because you have to go to every game. And when there's only three of you, there's no, you don't have the joy of rotation. So if you had a Tuesday night game in probably Newcastle or something like I'm trying to think of a championship northern club yeah. a really northern championship yeah. club you would then come back get back at three in the morning you would need to go in the next day because you had a program deadline and there was only three of us and we were all yeah. working on it but that was the fun of it and I was young it was my first job and it was fun like ultimately I was paid to talk bright and watch yeah. football so
3: yeah, and it must have been hardcore, I can imagine, because obviously you've got the Sunday matches, Tuesday games with the Premier League, they're a bit more spread out. So, wow, that must have been. And, you know, obviously you've worked uh, closely with Chris and Chris, you've worked with many of the AC Balls media partner. But one person you've worked with very closely, of course, as we've mentioned, is Willow. Chris Hubble uh, said, what is Willow like to work with? I'm sure you can't sum this up very quickly, but give us <laughs> an explanation of what it's
4: like on a match day. Well, Chris is right there, what was Willow like to him? So unless he knows something I don't, Willow's had, his, Willow's had his P45, I think, for his performance on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, that shirtless performance. Um, yeah. I mean, Willow, let's face it, he's brilliant. I mean, the thing that, that people always say about Willow is his passion for the club and his enthusiasm and his will to want them to do well is the thing that engages people the most. And of course, that therefore creates times when they want, and I, I know we spoke about this previously, Sam, they want him off the fence sometimes. But yeah. the problem is, you know, he's very close to Eddie. I think people underestimate how close he is to Eddie mm-hmm. um, from their time. Eddie was a young player. Willow was a centre-half, learned a lot from from Willow. Eddie and Willow still speak away from, you know, the, the hubbub of, of Premier League match days. They might not speak on a Saturday, but, you know, Eddie certainly calls Willow at times. Um, so, therefore, Willow is... is he. he He is honest at times. He's more honest in the car on the way back from games, I've got to say. but um, And also, he knows what it's like, of course, to be a player. So that's the difficulty, is that often players, unless they're really trying to make a name for themselves and really trying to put themselves up there as the the controversial pundit um, to try and make themselves make a name for themselves, um, you will find, I think, players side on the side of players quite a lot. Um, But... He's a great guy. He bought me a beer, I think, this season as well. So that's a remarkable turnaround from previous years. Um, and, and I've, as you... I've,
1: been away, I've been on away trips. When we did used to go on away. Sorry, Chris, to interrupt you then. No, I just noticed that my face gave it away a little bit there. Um, <laughs> I've, I've just been on away trips um, and we'd often, we'd travel up as a media team. And I would have seen Chris and Willow out. And that that just surprises me that he bought you a beer. Chris was always the <laughs> more sociable one up for that kind of thing so well done you've obviously ground him down
4: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but also he's you know he's uh he's lost quite a bit of weight recently yeah. as well so he's he's got himself into uh i mean not enough to be shirtless but better shape Let's put it that <laughs> way um
3: also chris we had a comment from james Roode who says uh it sounds like they're arguing at times during commentary it does make him chuckle
4: I would say a lot of the time we are like a bit of a bickering married old couple, to be honest with you, because we've been around together that long. I think it is 16 years we've been doing it together. We've obviously missed a few games in between there, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff about Willow that winds me up. There's stuff about me that definitely winds him up. Most notably my ability to find traffic on the way to games um, and not drop him off at the door, you know, little tiny things, but uh, we do bicker, but it's good fun. Um, And I think sometimes also I get a bit wound up when I can't get him off the fence Mm. and that therefore makes us sound like we're bickering a little bit as well. And I'm, I'm sort of hearing the fans in the distance saying, get him to give you an answer about this. And sometimes you push it so far, but I don't want to, I don't want him to walk off particularly because that would leave me in a hole. He did mention a time on a
3: recent interview where he put unleaded in diesel or other way, all ra- the other way round. And well, it was caused- nice of him
4: to admit that because he's always pinned that on me, but yeah, good <laughs> Friday away at Hull. He put a, a service station near Oxford. He put the wrong fuel in the car um, basically it took us about 11 hours to get to Hull. We had to go to a garage, get towed. And he's always pinned it on me, but he admitted on this podcast that it was him.
3: Good stuff. Well, yeah, <laughs> Um, very honest. Uh, so, Peter, obviously um, you joined the club well, in terms of uh, being the correspondent for The Athletic fairly recently. But uh, in terms of your football knowledge, of course, that's undoubted. But have any of the stories that you've heard of from the sort of early 20th century or even, you know, previously, have any of them surprised you? Because it's been a, an unprecedented rise, hasn't it, for AC Bournemouth?
2: From Bournemouth, sense, the Bournemouth story, Yeah, Do you mean? Yeah, well, of course, it's it's a fantastic story. I mean, it's, it's hard not to, to follow. I mean, I, I'm not a Bournemouth supporter. Um, I grew up in London, spent some time in Nottingham, went to London, and then, you know, I used to come on holiday to here, and that's, that's how I had a curs- cursory, like, you know, understanding of the club and, and the story. Um but in terms of you know where does it where does it rank sort of thing it's it's you know it's one of the best stories and obviously these guys have had a, a closer tally on it and I think for me coming in as you say you know, I'm, I'm sort of the newbie on the block so you have to be to be mindful of all these sort of things and um, making sure you're not stepping on too many toes you know I mean I won't find me uh, moving Willow out of the way when it comes to the canteen and, and getting a drink and stuff like that so um, you know you've got to know your place um, but no I mean in terms of what the story means and context of football more broadly yeah of course it's you know it's one of the the fairy tales and it's I think it's interesting coming in with that sort of independent look and you see the two sides of it and you understand it you know it is a phenomenal achievement but then there's so many people are so quick to try and undermine it at every sense every step and that's one of the first things that has sort of really struck me in that first year is the amount of times people oh you know it's not really a really a fairy tale it's not really that super story When reality is you know so many different elements to it, so many different facets to it. The story from, from Grimsby to, to Eddie to, to the Premier League years as well, promotion, team, there's so much to it. Um, and just talking to as many people involved, players, managers, staff, you do get a very quick sense of that for sure.
3: It seems that there was, you know, a lot happened off the pitch um, in the sort of, you know, early part of this, uh, you know, de- well, uh, this century. Uh, but the stuff that happened on the pitch, in sort of from 2012 onwards, um, it was when sort of, Kelly came on board, really. So- <laughs> it, uh, me, uh, it was on
1: <laughs> me, Nothing to do with uh, Eddie. It's not in rocket science, of, is it? Um,
3: yeah, yeah. In terms of your work with AFC Bournemouth Kelly, I mean, with yourself, Max and under the stewardship now of um, of Anthony Marshall um, like AFCB TV, and then it, it was called Cherry's Player I think, that has come on leaps and bounds and enables fans to you know, connect with the club better than ever before, now you've interviewed a lot of AFC Bournemouth players, both in your role now but previous as well who, who was one of the better players to interview? Do
1: you know what, I recently had to interview Tommy Alfick for something and Tommy, Chris will be able to concur with this as well, Tommy was well, everyone knows what an incredible person and player Tommy was for the club. And he always fronted up. I had one argument with him after a defeat in the championship. I can't remember which game it was, where he literally told me where to go in the tunnel. But then he came up and apologised a week later But because he, he would never, ever, ever say no to doing an interview. And he was brilliant. Um, and I did the interview with him when uh, the last one for the club TV, obviously, when he went to Aston Villa um, and I watched it back Um after speaking to him because we kind of we had I had to do this interview with him over Zoom obviously and then we had a long chat about everything about life about the players and kind of that was around the time the club had done the interview with the back four which I thought was brilliant as well um and it made me go back and watch this interview with Tommy and I can still it kind of took me back to that moment
0: mm-hmm. um and there's
1: a break in it and I you wouldn't be able to tell unless well you maybe would now if you went and watched it because I pointed it out but there's a break in it because he got so emotional that he started crying.
3: He was I, really emotional yeah, in that. Yeah, and
1: I've got a photo on my phone, um, and I don't think I've ever put it out because it made it look a bit more like we were a married couple. Because we both <laughs> cried at the end of it, and I just said Tom can I have a photo, which I would never do, and it, it, I look so so upset because I don't know. It was just it was it felt like a bit of an end of an era, which which it kind of was, and I actually um, went on to leave the club shortly after as well. Uh, but that interview, I listened back to it, and I was like. That was, what, four years ago now. And I don't think I could have, it wasn't the world's best interview, but I was happy with what I asked in terms of I knew the story. And it just, it just took me back to a really good time and how lucky we were to have Tommy. So he was my best interview at AFC Bournemouth, without doubt. And that one in particular is still one of my favourites and probably always will be.
3: Mm, Good stuff. We've had some comments coming in. Uh, One from Wing actually saying uh, when Kelly was with the club, she had a phone camera and did the pitch walks and those were great. They
1: were great. But then I used to keep, particularly when it's the Premier League, I kept getting caught on Sky Sports doing it. (laughs) And then I think a Premier League regulation came in that we weren't actually allowed to do that. So I had to stop doing it. And also Amy Maidman, who obviously is still one of the club's brilliant photographers, used to get photos of me doing it as well. Um, So, yeah, there was a combination of reasons that we stopped doing those. (laughs)
3: Oh, stuff! and also he had a comment from Ethan Burney who said uh, you looked after me when he had a tour at Bournemouth with uh, Fletcher and Matt Ritchie. Do you remember yeah.
1: yeah, I do. And also, um, oh, he was such a such a lovely little boy. Yeah. And also I've helped him out a couple of times since in terms of Alex Deutsch, who is one of the more vocal Bournemouth supporters on Twitter. I'm sure loads of you guys know him. Yeah. He's absolutely brilliant with Ethan and a couple of times mm. he's tried to get him um like tickets or stuff like that and I've tried to help with the players I've kept in touch with um, what a lovely little boy and what a massive Bournemouth fan he is
3: yeah. And um, Alex is, yeah, you know, like you say on Twitter, he's, you know, very vocal. And um, I think Steve Cook's, you know, done him a few, uh, you know, favours a few he's times. The one, he's I've the one I've,
1: yeah, he's the one I've hooked him up with a couple of times because Cookie, Cookie, a bit like Tommy as well. Cookie, another very, very good lad. Nice, but we're roughly the same age as well. So kind of had quite a lot in common and nice, nice guy.
3: So, um, in terms of interviews, um, Tony asked this question saying, what's the strangest thing to um, happen to you in an interview? Because this was ours. So, yeah, we're going to play you what happened last week. And um, it, was, it was pretty strange with Harry Redknapp. This is what happened.
2: Harry, we know, sorry, Harry, we know you've got to go at nine. Um, would you come no, back on to do it? To, or can you, can you put, get Sandra to put the dinner in the oven for a bit?
3: How long we got, son? Sam? Same. Sandro, how long we got? I love this. Absolutely. suppose i go do, have me dinner and go back on with the boys. Yeah, can I can have me dinner. I'll come back in 15 minutes with you. Is that all right, lads? No problem at yeah. all. We can keep talking. No worries at all. Yeah? Yeah, Lovely
0: you stuff. do that. Yeah, yeah, that, go that go it. Otherwise, i in a minute. Okay.
3: Lovely. Cheers, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> that was bizarre, right? Because we, we thought we'd have about 60 minutes with him. And... He can tell a story. I mean, you've probably both, you know, or all, all you chatted to him before, I'm sure. And it seems that you have to kind of, you know, try to guide him a little bit in the conversations because he would go off on a tangent big time. And I think during that 60 minutes, we got as far as West Ham. So we had <laughs> QPR, um, the little stint at Birmingham. So a lot to go through. But in terms of your unique experiences, we'll start with Chris. Have you ever had any strange interview experiences?
4: Um, I think anyone who's worked pitch side will have had a sprinkler um, either <laughs> on them or very close to them at some point. I'm sure Kelly has doing sort of club interviews post-match uh, by the side of the pitch. I know I've had a sprinkler, not fully over me, but um, certainly very close to me. Um, I'm not sure if I, I... mean, Roy Hodgson came past me and Jermaine Defoe in the very narrow tunnel at Crystal Palace. I think it was last season after Defoe had scored that um fantastic goal and made a there was a little exchange between the two where Roy Hodgson said I can't actually remember what he said but I remember tweeting it and the tweet just went and not many of my tweets go anywhere but this one kept going and it was some comment about being left out of the World Cup squad or something um, and it was a comment that I sort of I could hear it was happening so I was sort of moving my mic a bit closer to Roy Hodgson trying to get what he was saying because <laughs> it was in the middle of our interview Jermaine Defoe was sort of turning around talking to Roy Hodgson so I mean little things where people go past and say comments and that causes players. But I mean, in terms of specifics, I, I can't really think of any interviews that have sort of, I must admit, have, have sort of broken down off the top of my head. I, I will as soon as this is finished, I'm sure. Well, um, I saw one of the ones that oh, there's a there's
3: a Watford fan on here that's clocked that you're on air. So hello Mark. No, I'll throw them out straight away. <laughs> yeah. Um Kelly, I I'm sure it was you, an interview that I've seen on YouTube or Twitter or something, where was it Jordan Henderson?
1: Oh, yeah, and yeah.
3: Jamie, I can't, I, uh, can you explain what that you know happened there?
1: um So <laughs> it, was at the League, it was at the Champions League final last year, hmm. um and the first Champions League final I've been to, and it was incredible. um And we were kind of we did post match um, in the Tribune. I was working for Australian TV, so when you're an international rights holder, you kind of get a little area. So as the trophy presentation happened, we were kind of in the the top of the first tier if you like did our post-match stuff and then the Optus guys said would you be able to get down pitch side and see if you can get some other reaction we can come and cross back live to you because the players will maybe be calling down or whatever yeah yeah no problem but I couldn't get down so I ended up somehow finding I didn't mean to but I was trying to get down trying to talk my way through with my non-existent Spanish and I ended up with Roberto Firmino's family I didn't realize the Roberto Firmino's family just blended myself in He got the security came and got Roberto Firmino's family. I just walked along with them and got pitch side. And I was like, yes, met my camera operator. (laughs) And then we were kind of waiting for stuff to happen. And my colleague Jules had met Jordan Henderson a couple of times. He came over and kind of was chatting, just had a picture. And then I became aware that he was looking for his dad. His dad appeared. And then I don't know if you've seen the backstory with his dad. His dad was very, very ill Um, And obviously Jordan Henderson's kind of had this rags to riches kind of story, wasn't particularly fashionable and has now gone on and won the Champions League, probably going to win the Premier League. So it was a really emotional moment between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And then my producer in my ear just was seeing all this on camera because we had the camera rolling and just said, can you interview him, see if he'd interview And I'd got talking to him. So I just said, look, I don't mind if you don't want to do this, but it would be great if I could just grab a few words. And he was virtually in tears and was like, yeah, of course, of course and um so we did this interview and it went pretty viral because i didn't know the full backstory of how ill his dad had been probably would have done a better interview had i known um but yeah it kind of went viral the papers picked it up and i've actually vaguely kept in touch with him since just because we um exchanged numbers just so i could send him the interview so we could see it um but it's one of those things where i almost didn't even get down pitch side then you end up coming down with Roberto Firmino's family and Roberto Firmino just appears and you're like, oh, this is his family. And he looks at me and says, who the hell are you? I dodge away and get stuck in between John Henderson, Like one of those, you can't write it and then you end up doing an interview like that. So um, that's probably the strangest experience I've had, yeah.
3: Yeah. So uh, Tom O'Donnell got in touch and it's, you know, it's like he's like psychic because um, the next question is very uh, similar to this uh, about forming interview questions and having to be tactical about manipulating someone to talk. So, Peter, I was going to come to you um, because, I mean, Brett Pittman, we've got him on Tuesday. And from what I see, he doesn't seem to be that vocal so uh, can you give me some tips about how, how on earth am I going to get the, the, the sort of best out of him during that chat?
2: Uh, I've, i spoke to about recently, actually. Like he's, 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 he is a good talker. I think he hasn't done too much media, I think, which is why we probably can't really suss him out too much. But he, you know, he's always been a good talker when, when I've spoken to him. And I think the best way to do it is just, well, I always start with just be nice, be friendly. I guess it's different for me because I, I'm written media. So if I'm doing a written interview, a lot of that can be a lot of off the record conversation, talking about all sorts of general topics. And that normally tries and relaxes them a bit. But obviously, you know, for you guys, if you're if you're live, it's a different thing. So you, you generally you'll probably start with the the lighter questions, the nicer ones. Uh, I remember this season I wanted to, I was doing a feature on Callum Wilson's recovery from his two injuries and I think I can't remember which game it was, it was after and he came out for his mixer and sometimes he stops, sometimes he doesn't and then I just went straight in with the question. I didn't even, didn't even start with a couple because he'd done a few others. I was not getting any, any change out of Callum that day. And Callum's normally great. He normally does, does, does talk very well. But you have to time it. you have to place it really the, at the right time. But, yeah, with Brett, you'll, you'll be all right. You just have to get, get, him, get him comfortable, ask him how he is, and I'm sure it will be fine. Uh, Chris, you
3: spoke to him on many a, a time. Um, what am I going to do? Have you got well, any that I could maybe mention stories behind the scenes?
4: Oh, it's funny because Brett actually, that my little hiatus from doing Cherry's games was actually in, in Brett's sort of golden era because I didn't do, for example, the League One promotion season to the Championship. Yeah. Um, I was presenting our Solent Saturday afternoon show then. So I had sort of a, a three-year spell, I think it was, when I didn't do Bournemouth. But in terms of interviews generally, I mean, as the other guys will tell you, every type I mean, even every radio interview is different. For example, every Friday morning when I sit down with Eddie, it's completely different to, a Saturday afternoon post-match because mm. post-match you've got about three minutes you've got to rattle through everything that's happened your adrenaline is still going from the game sometimes I can't even think of things to ask before he's even come into the room um, because he's out straight away and match of the day are tied up um whereas Friday morning pre-match you've thought of it all in advance uh, and Kelly you know with her football focus features as she'll tell you and things like that in, in a moment is a lot more it's a lot more chatty. So I, my my personal interview style when I'm doing things that aren't sort of post match you know, cutthroat three-minute interviews is just for it to be a chat. And as Pete says, you know, start off friendly, go in gentle, a couple of warm-ups. It's it's like anything, really. Um, you know, you, you, you don't want to go literally showing your hand straight away, um, as we've seen, you know, some fantastic journalism over the last couple of days from certain newspapers in certain political mm-hmm. situations where don't put all your cards on the table straight away. Um, so, yeah, there's times when you need to ask hard questions, and it's good to sometimes bury those somewhere in the middle. Um, but, you know, and also my one issue that I always criticise myself on, and I would say, you know, it tips to anybody who's interviewing in the future, is if you're doing a, a, an interview that's tight on time, keep the question short. One of my biggest issues in post-match is rambling on to Eddie. And before I know it, I've sort of tied myself in a knot. So just keep it to a line, whereas chatting away, it's more of a dialogue, so you could be much longer. But if you're doing a time, time-critical interview, keep your question short. Yeah. And you do that
3: stuff during like half times, Kelly. I've seen you do like half time interviews and there's only sort of three minutes of time. And I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff that's in your ear at the time. And I can't remember who it was, but there was a TV presenter on Twitter who posted what he hears at the time. And I was yeah. just like, how on earth do you concentrate?
1: Do you know what, that's one of the biggest things I'm worried about when I have to go back and present in the studio again? Am I going to forget what it's like to have all these people in my ear? Because at the moment, it obviously don't have that. But I'd agree with what Chris says. I that's one thing I'm also very very guilty of the over talking. Ultimately, you're there to get the best out of Brett. Brett, I worked with very closely when he came back to the club mm-hmm. um, in League One and the Championship, and. He's done quite a bit of media. He's clearly not super comfortable in that environment. However, the fact that he's agreed to do this, this isn't, he could have said no to you. So I think that automatically gives you license to know he's quite going to be quite chilled. Also, I've actually found with a lot of the player interviews I've done by Zoom, they're actually more comfortable. I've found that they've been a bit more chatty because they don't really have, they're not thinking, oh, I want to get home. That's often what they're doing. But the post-match interview environment is a big part of my job, as it is Chris's. And they're enjoyable, but they're not really enjoyable. The enjoyable ones are the ones where you sit down and do these ones where you have got a bit more time because those post-match, it's very much formulaic. It's a lot more, you've got to, to, you want the immediate reaction, then you go in a bit more deeper on any big talking points and then you end looking forward. That's the basic thing. With this, I think you've got a lot more time. He's going to be more comfortable, but I would go in softly um, and... I just, I just think if he's agreed to do it, because I, I was surprised when you said you got him. Yeah. I, I, knowing he was never used to be that big on media, he was, he was one that we not harder to put up, but he wouldn't give much away when we did put him up. Yeah. Um, but Bournemouth fans love him, so maybe maybe massage the ego. That never be a bad thing. Here's one thing not loves.
4: to ask too much about, Sam, and that's this season at Portsmouth because it hasn't gone that well
0: for him. Personally.
3: No, I've heard, and obviously he came back to train uh, mm. with the youngsters for a bit. So I'd like to maybe uh, expand on that a bit. But uh, and Marvin Bartley in a recent interview said that um, if we promised him a bottle of orange Luke's Aid, he's like you know game on for anything. Apparently, big fan. So wow. <laughs> we're oh, happy yeah. to the, the coast, not. Yeah, not sure. Um, Kelly, what's Eddie like to interview? Because he seems very sort of media trained. He seems very economical with his words, and seems to, um, if he wants to cut short a conversation, he he manages to somehow do it in the nicest possible way.
1: Chris, Chris is smiling because obviously Chris still Chris has probably done thousands of interviews with Eddie, Um, and also Chris did it from the point of view of. Chris was working. Oh, look, like, there's a photo of me interviewing Eddie yeah. with this horrendous roots. Why <laughs> did no one tell me that it was promotion weekend? You I got down roots. That happened. I wasn't even in lockdown. <laughs> anyway, um, to be fair, that's my own fault. I put it on my own Instagram recently. Um, the one thing with Eddie, and we know this is what he's achieved, is Eddie is so, so clever. And so Eddie always knows what is coming. And when Eddie doesn't, where, I, I realised a tactic with him very quickly. When someone asks Eddie a question and he wants to buy a bit of thinking time, he will say to you, that's that's a good question, actually. That's his way of thinking. He, he does that quite a lot, doesn't he, Chris? Just buys that's every, I mean, every
4: government briefing at the minute, yeah. they say that, that, Kelly, thank you so much for sending that question in. Here's five seconds while yeah. I think of what I'm going to say. And also,
1: because then the reporter's going, oh, great. And it's kind of a little bit, not lost, but it distracts you a little bit from your answer. Eddie is very, very good at that. Um, Eddie also knows exactly what to say and is also very, very conscious of his players watching interviews. So, in this interview, this is the interview I did with him recently here. Um, Max was actually in the corner of the room and he said he thought it was really, really interesting because he had to pick out his top five games in the Premier League. And one of them that he picked out was this season's win over Manchester United. And I kind of thought it was. When when yes, it was a big win, but when you think of all of Bournemouth's best games since promotion, I was a little bit surprised. But he when I pushed him on why he picked that, he said, um, because we haven't we haven't been as good when we have a big result like that of following it up. And also that result showed that although it's been a tougher season, that result showed my players they can do it, they can beat these top teams when against all odds. He knows what he's saying there, he's sending a message to the players. And I think that although maybe I wouldn't say he doesn't enjoy media. It's Eddie loves being on the training pitch. Eddie used to say he loves pre-season because being on the training pitch is his favourite thing, but he knows doing media can benefit him and he's, He's just clever, isn't he, Chris? I think that would be something I would say. He always knows what he's saying. He, he doesn't have a rush of blood to the head, I don't think. I can't really think of any examples where he's let him, his guard down. I don't know if you can, Chris.
4: Not really. I mean, as you quite rightly said, and I think I said this, Sam, when we spoke before as well, that he he will never give anybody anything to pin on the dressing room wall. Um, he will never, you know, particularly big anybody else up. He, he's always, you know, the classic he always comes out with is don't get too high when you win and don't get too low when you lose. And that is that is him. He is middle of the road. I think that's his personality generally. He's not... Particularly, you know, he would say excitable character. And I think Kelly's right. If you said to him, you can be a Premier League manager, but you've never got to do another interview in your life, he would bite your hand off for that. He's interested in coaching. He knows he's got to do it. And unfortunately for someone like him, when you get to the Premier League, uh, you suddenly have maybe 10 post-match interviews to do instead of just one little circle of pool of local journalists that you do when you're in League One. I hmm. uh, Got a quick question about Neil Parrott, Chris, because obviously he's at the
3: Ooh. club now, so um, you um, are on the, you're sort of you know, batting for the same side, so to speak. where on Twitter there seem to be these little spats <laughs> And I can work out whether they were real or not. Can you um, maybe give a, shed a little bit more? Um,
4: well, first of all, they weren't real. Uh, let's put it that way. me and Neil have gotten very well for um, oh there we are Look at him with the popcorn. Uh that was the yeah, that was the 17 uh, screening. Look at, that hair screening. Look at yes. the hair there. So that's when it's just been cut. Um yeah. I'm not sure I'm gonna go that short again. Anyway, that was the <laughs> minus 17 premiere. But myself and Neil have a, a very good relationship, and we've gone all the way back to obviously Neil's career with Bournemouth goes back a very long way. And there were pretty much most of the early years, it was just me and him post-match. Um, so therefore, sometimes you would be discussing, as Pete will tell you, sometimes newspapers have you know chats between the Sundays and the Mondays and whatever about what they're gonna run and what they're gonna hold. That, then it would be me and Neil. He'd ask when I'm going to put something out, uh, and I would say, "Well, probably not till Tuesday." And he would put it in his paper on Tuesday. So it's always been a great relationship. He's a great addition to the Bournemouth Media team now as a written journalist. You know, I mean, he's he really is adding some sparkle to the the articles yeah, on yeah. the website, the long form stuff. Um, so yeah, to answer the question in a, a long winded way, it wasn't real. I think he had some beef with with the BBC and with maybe with Radio Solent, but nothing personal. We get on great.
3: Good stuff. Now, Peter, in um in your time at AFC Bournemouth, you've you've covered some very interesting stories. Um, and a couple of times you've done stories that perhaps might be looked on by the club as not needed for an AFC Bournemouth point of view. Um, how difficult do you find it to maintain the balance? Because you've obviously got to maintain some kind of relationship there.
2: Um, I guess when I guess when you're a local, well, basically that's what I am. I'm, I'm local reporter, so I'm attached to the club. You you're reliant on the club to an extent. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, but at the same time, I've, I've got to maintain you know, my, my independence of where I stand. And uh, I can't be seen to, to be writing things that aren't necessarily just the club line. I mean, it's, you know, you have to maintain that objectivity and that's that's the balancing act, really. You don't want to do things that are unnecessary. You don't want to, you know, bite the hand that feeds you too much. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it works the other way too. And that's, that's the balance really. And, and getting that balance right is, is really important. And it's, it, it's, it's about respect really, um, respecting where the club stands on everything, respecting, um, what they want, you know, the right ways of doing things and, and trying to find that balance is, is very important. And that's, that's the gist of it really. And you, naturally you're going, because you naturally you're going to annoy people. Sometimes some stories, people don't want to, don't want out there. And, and that's, that's understandable, you know, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't write them. Um, So, yeah, it's just finding that happy medium, and sometimes there isn't always a happy medium.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, We've got some questions that have been submitted actually for you, Peter, saying how is the athletic changing sports journalism? Because it's, you know, as I said on a recent story, it's like, you know, there are these articles that seem really tenuous at the time. Like, you know, this guy was the man that cooked the hot dogs when Zinedine Zidane got sent off against France and, you know, for France even. Um, You're always finding unique angles, aren't you? It's fair to say that.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's always the common theme, isn't it? You know, we're going to interview the bus driver of the former Bournemouth striker's uncle's granddad's dog's uncle <laughs> um, and but yeah it's it's a mix of that and I think there's lots of different sides to so it I think one of the things that we quite like is a lot of the things that might get lost on the cutting room floor that you'd probably get to crop out you can you can keep and use in other stories um because it is very club-centered you have that focus and you're not tied to newspaper deadlines you're not tied to the news cycle so much. I think we want to stay on top of the news cycle and that's quite an important balance. We're still trying to learn. We're still very new. So trying to get that right is, is important to us. But in terms of how it's sort of changing sports journalism, it's I guess it's a, the detachment of, of print, really. Um, we are all online. We are on an app and we are wanting to do more longer form features with fans in mind. You know, with, with the subscriber model, you know, I'm I want to the right things my subscribers want to read. Um, and sometimes it will be the more obscure things because that's of interest to them. And I know Bournemouth supporters are interested in things that go further back, um, that are interested in things that may not necessarily have been told before. And Whereas, you know, a lot with, especially as a national focus, because we do have, you know, reporters all over the country, you know, the focus will often be the top six sometimes and the top seven, top eight, and other sides can can get lost in that, especially in the Premier League. Um, so it's quite nice that every club sort of gets their, their airtime on the site and can have, you know, you can, you can be a subscriber and just read the Bournemouth stuff, which a lot of you, a lot of the guys do. And and I'm, I'm conscious of that. And I want to make sure my coverage is, is good enough for that as well as all the, all the other clubs. So yeah, it's, it's trying to do things a different way. We tried doing Q and A's, um, we still do them, which is great where you can interact a lot more. We're very big on that. Um, post-match are always very tricky because you're often running down to the mix zone and, it's like a 15 minute Q and A that we do, so I try. To, I'll be back in a bit as I try to, to grab people. So, um, so that side of it's a bit new, a bit different. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's basically telling stories that wouldn't necessarily always be told. It's not massively different, but it's a different format, It's a different medium. So, so quick sense, fire, yeah.
3: quick fire question for you, Pete. Uh, we know that Chris, his allegiances are with Gillingham, uh, Kelly, of course, Watford. Who is your football team? Oh, it's going to break for facade.
2: Oh, I don't know it? the answer yeah. to this. Yeah, nobody <laughs> knows the answer to this. I've been very coy. No, my team's Forest, Nottingham Forest. I lived oh, in Nottingham until so. till I was eight um, and moved to London then.
4: So, yeah, I'm a Forest fan.
2: Be prepared
1: um, now for continual Forest banter from Chris uh, forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> Your hair looks a bit like their club badge at the moment, Pete, as well. <laughs> it does to <delicious. laughs> uh, How did you know that's what I was going for?
1: Uh, <laughs> So,
3: you know, Kelly. Obviously, being a Watford fan, does your um and but working for AC Bournemouth, where, you know it seemed to be that when you worked for AC Bournemouth, that every single match against Watford was a draw. Oh. I don't know if that was the case or not, but working. Well, no, closely... it wasn't because
1: the first one, the first one away, Watford oh. won six one. Yeah,
3: about and that, that one, was that
1: was incredibly awkward because yeah, it was just all I just i got one. What, it, it's tough because you want. Watford, I want Watford to win every single game, but it was actually easier when they didn't win those games because I found that, because the players knew, I was quite friendly with a lot of the players. Like the, I'd speak to them, they knew I was a Watford fan. If Watford won, they hated me, it was my fault. If Watford lost, they could banter me and about how bad Watford were. So it was a bit of a lose-lose situation. I, I didn't enjoy those games at all. And I kind of still don't now, to be honest, Yeah, because I still have the kind of Watford and my first team, if you like, and I still always want Bournemouth to do really
3: well as well so let's talk about uh may 2014 no was it 2014 we can talk about
1: 2014 because that's a lot easier to talk about but i think you mean oh, 2015
3: sorry yeah what i say yeah 2014 yeah sorry 2015 um what's that like when you're working for a club when your team that you supported n- not a million miles away you know are yeah. one nil up with not long to go, I mean, the Chris's did, face.
1: <laughs>
3: you I mean, firstly, obviously, you're working for OCB, but how did you hear that news, and what? Um,
1: how- so, it, so, firstly, that we like at the time, it was it was really really surreal, and it's it still it still is. Um, but I was I was fortunate enough to be. I went to, on the Saturday. I went to Brighton, Watford one, and Watford didn't get their day, if you like, because I was then driving back to Bournemouth. With, so I didn't go back to Watford to see my friends and kind of celebrate because it kind of felt like the, the rest of the job needed to be done by Bournemouth um, so I went back to Bournemouth and that night Watford got promoted on the way back and I kind of had a bit of a drink at home and then it was all very much this will only be fun if Bournemouth get promoted it kind of I needed them both to get promoted and that was all I wanted genuinely um, so when that happened on the Monday it was incredible. And then, uh, to be completely honest, on the Saturday it was a win-win situation. Both the teams have got promoted. It was just then very, very unfortunate um, the way it happened for what Watford, from Watford's point of view. Um, but and it was it was weird. But the way I found out was because the the internet. I was in the press box doing the Twitter updates, and we would got graphics prepared for like runners up and champions, and I was all ready to go with the full time runners up. And then the fans, exactly as the players have said since the fans were like saying, it. and I was like, no, it can't be real because, and then I refreshed Twitter because I wasn't refreshing Twitter at that point because I was just getting ready to do the full time tweet. I opened another tab with Twitter and I was like, Oh my, oh my God, they've, and then it's a really weird thing because it's like, Oh, wicked, which, which mindset do I have to go in? And one thing I've learned through my job and I still have it now because I still report on Watford all the time as completely neutral. I, you go into a mode, I go into a mode where, okay, I'll forget about that, I'll be upset about that later if I need to be, I've just got to go, I've all of a sudden now, from us just doing a little bit of a clap with the fans at the end, there's gonna be a trophy presentation, I'm gonna to need to be part of it, I'm gonna to need to do a bit of help. Um, the other media guys, I was on t- social media, which is the biggest blessing because they went down first, which gave me a few minutes to kind of get Twitter tied up, put everything out, make sure we got everything and actually I wasn't in a rush then as much to get down to the tunnel, um, what I will say is Harry Arthur certainly let me know um, what he thought of Watford, which is fine. I had a very very good relationship with Harry as well, and um, still still do now. So no bad feelings. It was it was quite tough. I just went into autopilot, but then seeing when you've you've watched a club and how hard everyone's worked and how much it means to people to be there on that pitch, I can't. I forgot about Watford for a bit. Unfortunately, my mum and everyone, all my family that go to Watford, weren't at Watford that day, so didn't have to go through that. So for me, I kind of felt a little bit removed from it and we've both got promoted, both still there now. So yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a lot easier to take and hopefully both teams will still be in this Premier League next season as well.
3: Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, and that's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry about confusing the years there. I think, you know, you know, being a Premier League fan, I'm just so, you know, so kind of used to, um, you know, you know, looking at the present and looking at the future rather than looking at the past. And yeah, I mean, those were great days back uh, then. Um, Chris, I spoke to you outside the Vitality about um, Brian Moore being Mm. your, you know, commentary hero, so to speak. Um, uh, Do you remember in World Cup 98, um, there was a penalty shootout and it was him and Kevin Keegan doing co-commentary and moments before David Batty's penalty, I'm sure it was 98, moments before his his penalty, he said to Kevin Keegan, will David Batty score? Yes or no? And he gave him like three seconds. And of course, you know, Kevin Keegan said yes. Would you ever be tempted to do that to Willow or is it just <laughs> it, like it goes without saying because he's just Mr.
4: Positive, isn't he? Well, to be fair, I'm always trying to get him. Sometimes I have, literally, in the last couple of years when I've got so frustrated with him not giving an answer, I have actually gone to him, yes or no. Like, it's got down to that stage. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Brian Moore, uh, as you mentioned, Gillingham is my team, and Brian Moore was a big Gillingham fan, and the stand behind one of the goals is is named the Brian Moore stand. And uh, he was just someone I listened to when I grew up, you know, a lot of people have Motty as their sort of the commentator from our era when you were growing up. But I was I have to say I was more of a Barry Davis man myself. Um, I just think that ev- everyone has their own different styles individually. Um, you think these days I think of someone like Peter Drury, for example, who is very mm-hmm. sort of uh, lyrical. And uh, if you ask me, it sounds pre-prepared. It, it probably isn't. I don't want to do him a disservice, but it sounds like it's written and ready to go. Um, whereas a lot of other people like Martin Tyler is a lot more impulsive and it it sounds like it's just coming out of the time. Uh, the likes of Steve Wilson, Guy Mowbray on BBC are, are brilliant as well. Um, but yeah, Barry Davis, I don't know. I just connected a little bit more with him. I think it was probably more because I was into quite a few sports as a youngster and he seemed to pop up everywhere. He did hockey and he did, you know, football and he did something else. And I really admired his versatility, which is. Uh, you know, a lot of football commentators don't do other sports, so it's good to have um, good to have a few different strings to your bow. It's not anything like the question you asked, but I feel a thirty seconds for you anyway. <laughs> what I love. Um, I remember
3: in um, Ch- Chelsea uh, when we beat Chelsea four 0 at home. Jonathan Pearce was doing the commentary for much of the day, and that night they had a midweek special. And I remember on Charlie Daniels's fourth the goal he came up with some lyric so it was almost Mm. poetic from the charlie daniels band and i thought there is no way on earth you've not
4: pre-prepared that but then you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think that charlie daniels was going to score i mean i i've I've worked with commentators who have had a little line written down under each person so that when they you know i remember a certain i'm not going to name the commentator or the team but it was a dutch player and he was very unlikely to score a goal. But underneath his name, there was a little two or three word phrase. And sure enough, when that person eventually did score, that phrase came out, which, you know, it, it's it's a way of doing it. It's not my way of doing it. it I prefer to be impulsive. Um, I prefer to just say what comes out. Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't really go that well at all. Um, yeah. But that's I suppose that's the skill of, of being a broadcaster. And that's why I'm not a match of the day and lots of better people are.
3: <laughs> so you left ASB Kelly, and now you're doing all sorts, especially lots of stuff for the Premier League. Would you would it be fair to say this is your dream job?
1: Um, yeah, I'd say so. And um, there's obviously still lots of things I would love love to do. Um, going forward, and the beauty of the job is there's so many opportunities, so many different things you can do. Um, and the variety I get at the moment is still brilliant. I present some shows. I feature kind of, I don't, I never really know what to say. My role is on final score when I'm in the studio. I'm either at, I do every other week, one week I'm in the studio kind of doing the EFL roundup, which is tricky. Um, I also am pitched, i reporter for FA Cup games, um, kind of went to the Women's World Cup for them. So it's like such a variety of different things. Um, just before lockdown, I got to present um, England women's, one of their games um, out at the She Believes Cup. And I love doing that, presenting live sport. I'd love to do more of that, but To be honest, it's just, it's yeah, it is a dream. Um, And it's one of those things where you kind of have to pinch yourself sometimes. And some, particularly at the moment where I kind of have to remind myself that once upon a time, that was my job. And hopefully once upon a time, it will all come back.
3: (laughs) Good stuff. Someone's asked, Craig Beasley, actually. I'm not sure if I've got this question as a banner. Uh, No, there is. Um, Pre-match rituals. As a supporter, you know, I have the same routine every single home game. We'll start with you, Chris. Is there a routine that you sort of you know go through each um, game?
4: not not sort of not sort of uh, rhythmically in terms of things I do in the right order, but for a home game I will always leave home at quarter past eleven uh in the summer maybe a bit earlier because we know what the traffic is like getting to uh get into Bournemouth in the summer uh, I always try and be at the ground for eleven forty five to twelve for a three o'clock kickoff I go straight in and set my equipment up and test it all uh, because if you've got anything that goes wrong anything not working you've got time to fix it um if the club of mm. If the line's not working or your microphone's not working, you've got plenty of time. Um, and also you factored in some time if you get stuck in traffic, which is uh, certainly a regular occurrence. But in terms of like, you know, doing certain things, I don't have any coffee in the hour before the game because um, that can sort of dry your voice out as well. So, I mean, it's not really a ritual, but it's just something I try and avoid doing. Um, and I always, always bring my colleagues who are stuck at the point at halfway, at time, like Kevin James, who presents our Solent Saturday show. I always bring in whatever is down in the press room at half time. So if it's a donut or a bit of cake, people always think I'm getting two for myself, but actually, I'm just a selfless kind of guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, so Dan Lurie,
3: submitted a question saying, as as your voice is one of the primary assets for your job, how, how do you take care of it outside work or do you
4: just not bother with that? Um, I, I mean, uh, trying not to have coffee immediately before broadcasting or caffeine is, a, is the only thing I really do. There are some times when you, I think of actually the FA Cup semi-finals last year at Wembley, which were obviously back-to-back, back, um, Man City, Brighton and Watford against Wolves. And obviously, the Watford-Wolves game was an absolute uh, cracker. There's Emma Saunders, who's another Watford fan, uh, who's an excellent broadcaster on Five Live these days. Um, but my colleague at Wembley, yeah. Um, and actually, on the second day, go turning up to Wembley for the second FA Cup semi-final, um, I turned up and my voice was, I would say, at about 50%. And I'm thinking, goodness me, like, if if something happens here today, then I really don't feel like I'm, I'm coming into this 100%. There's nothing you can do about it. There's there's two FA Cup semi-finals in two successive mm-hmm. days, apart from breathing hot steam overnight, which I'm sure vocal coaches will tell you to do. I personally don't have anything like that. There's cherry drops and all sorts you can do. Um, I know other people who are involved in pushing their voice quite a bit. I have a colleague who actually had to go to a vocal coach to work out how he could preserve his voice. For example, working at things like um athletics championships where they go on for 10 days and you're literally turning up evening, morning, evening, morning every single day. Um then sometimes people can struggle and it's a it is a genuine issue. So it's a good question.
3: Yeah, interesting. Um so um we're gonna we're gonna talk about the sort of last couple of months what what new hobbies has everyone learned. Uh, Kelly, I think I saw I think it's an Instagram story. I saw you doing some baking and I would have sworn it was a Yorkshire pudding that you cooked but... <laughs> No.
1: <laughs> Thanks for pointing out the one thing that's gone really badly. Um i yeah, I'm not I'm not well known for my cooking, um, but, but I said something on at the beginning of lockdown on Instagram. I said I'm fed up with getting the comments. Um, the few sexist comments on Twitter, the obvious one is go back to the kitchen. The irony of that is I'm really, really bad in the kitchen. So I kind of tried this lockdown to be able to say that by the end of it, I will be able to say, okay, I will go back to the kitchen because I can do that as well. Uh, But yeah, that one was a cinnamon swirl that went so unbelievably wrong. I didn't get my dough right. But yeah, um, it was bad. It was some of the suggestions I put it up just to see what people um, thought it was. I had, gosh, I can't even remember now. Pretzel someone said. Yeah, I saw that. um yeah, it was yeah as well anyway but yeah I've been doing that I've um, also been having Spanish lessons for work because I would like to be able to eventually speak another language and um, it would just really help with interviewing particularly with the number of Spanish and South American players in the league um and well, I've been well,
3: exclusive uh can you give us a sentence in Spanish
1: oh, why did I say <laughs> that because I should have known that was going to happen um what kind of thing
3: um, yeah. Is there a bank near here? Because that's the only one thing I know in Spanish.
1: I don't even know what a bank is. She's not got a bank to bank,
3: bank shit, Sam. <laughs> bank. <laughs> um, uh,
1: I can only speak in, um, I can only speak in kind um, of present tense and a bit in the future at the moment. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of quite limited, but I can say things like, um, so in the morning, I have the lessons in the morning and he'll say to me, what are you going to do today? And I'll say, Boya which means I'm going to go for a run. Because that's normally what I'm about to do after. Um, but yeah, I can little bits. Little Your bits. Spanish is better
4: than Jefferson Lerma's English, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
4: But, oh, that's hilarious. Kind of but is, that. is it,
1: or is that just him? Um, no, no, that? it is. Oh,
4: okay. His English is non-existent still. Yeah. Just, but, you does know, he know, do he have lessons? Yeah. Uh, I, I believe his lessons, uh, his enthusiasm for the lessons wasn't quite as high as Diego Rico's enthusiasm. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
3: Uh, Peter, like any hobbies, I, I know actually you, you did a podcast with Asmir Begovic, that so season of sport, didn't you? The, the, uh, last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah, that's not a hobby though. No. I mean, I don't do that you know, regularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, weird. I've taken up podcasts, actually, which is why I'm here. Um, yeah. No. To be honest, I've been, oh, I've been quite busy. Am I allowed to say that? So, you know, um, been plant like trying to grow stuff. I think is probably the, the nearest thing. I've got a basil on the windowsill, so that that counts. Mm-hmm. Something I'm doing, mm-hmm. but. On my, my work cycle, still the same so I use that as an excuse not to take on anything else but I should do more mm, good stuff <laughs> um,
3: also we just uh, got a few uh quick fire questions that have been uh sent in we'll go to Chris for this one what's your favorite rom-com Chris rom-com yeah Goodness. this is what's Me. still on
1: top Well
4: um, <laughs> um... <Or> is
0: that
1: <laughs> one coming specifically for Chris
4: I've a stitch up involved here. Is that being put under a syndrome? Um I would say um, Love Actually. Is that, is that a rom com? That's,
1: that's a good shout. Love Actually. Yeah,
3: excellent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Chris, I'll I'll also put this one to you. Uh, you know, hopefully Bournemouth aren't relegated. But if they were, mm. do you think we'd be all right? Do you, do you think we could bounce back? Um. Oh.
4: goodness me! Chris, I do this uh me. Just, I mean, if Bournemouth Bournemouth get relegated, and I don't think they will. I mean, without going into the details of the season resuming or whatever, um, too much. But I think if the season resumes, I mean, yes, there's six teams uh, in the shake-up, you'd say, for three places. But you've got no idea how some of the teams like Southampton and Newcastle, everyone is going to be starting from zero here and into completely unknowns. There's nothing to say that the likes of Southampton and Newcastle couldn't absolutely bomb. When, when the season comes back and just not be able to get out of the gate. So there's a chance they could get sucked back in. But if Bournemouth do get relegated, I would be, um, there'd be a lot of players going. I mean, I would think King will go this summer anyway. I think Ake will go this summer anyway. Um, Fraser obviously is going to go. Jordan Ives is, is effectively gone. Um, I can't see people like Jefferson Lerma wanting to hang around in the championship, particularly David Brooks. Um, so I would think there would be hawks circling for the best players. And Um, The the difference, I mean, Pete might know this better than me, but the the difference in in finances in the championship, I think it's, you know, roughly about 50 million for your first season um, when you drop into the championship. I think some of these graphs that have been around recently have factored in COVID as well. So um, financially, you know, Bournemouth relies so much on the TV money, as we know, from the Premier League. So the parachute payments help the drop, but they're not a West Brom. They're not a Leeds. They're not a, you know, in terms of the infrastructure and the ability to pay people big money in the championship, um, there was obviously financial fair play issues coming up from the championship previously. Um, so I would be not concerned, but I would think it would be a, a real battle because there's a lot of big clubs in the championship who are, would be a lot better prepared than Bournemouth would be if they suddenly got stripped of a lot of their best players. Saying all of that, they have brought in some good young players, but a lot of them are unknown. Meppham, Lloyd, Kelly, etc. Um, have still got a lot of developing to do.
3: But before we go we'll come back to peter and um but there are nine matches to go for Bournemouth um let's be positive um with the break it's been a blessing in disguise in terms of players coming back from injury of course Steve cook in the last match um he limped off you know Philip Billing didn't look too good but also David Brooks back in action as well will he be able to hit the ground running and you know will we be able to do it
2: well, uh, I think, as, as Chris was saying, I think everyone's in sort of the same boat here. So, if, if anything, that might level it out. Of course, David hasn't played competitively for what? A year? Which is, that's a long time out. So, um, because of that level playing field, there are so many unknowns. Um, the, the good side is that those players are available. It depends how much preparation time they get, you know, how, how they can get their fitness up to a certain point. But again, that's not match fitness. And we, there's just so many unknowns about, about the restart. But I guess that's, in, in a sense, it's a positive because if everyone's in the same boat, that, that really does help when we, when we come back. And the options available for Eddie when he comes, when you have know, the squad available, is really important. I think when you look at the fixtures, I think we when we were always talking about survival, it was always the home games. Um, obviously, now there won't be supporters. It would be, well, whether it's neutral grounds, not sure. But without the home, is it, does that diminish home advantage? You know, there's a difference between neutral grounds, You know, the, the distances you have to travel. So obviously with Newcastle visiting, that's the obvious one because Bournemouth had to go all the way over there. Is it, is it fair that they should come down, come down south? So yeah, there's lots of different variables. But circling back to, to your question, I think the fact that they are available, they are in training, they can be in a position to be as fit as everyone else um, within reason um, can only be a good thing.
3: Mm. good stuff well guys appreciate your input tonight really nice to catch up Chris as ever it was good to chat thanks Sam thanks for having me um, Kelly great to have you on really appreciate it
1: yeah thank you nice to take a little trip down memory lane and also to witness that bonnet before it gets cut off Chris
3: <laughs> <laughs> and also Peter thanks very much very much once again thanks for having me Sam thank you so brilliant to hear from Chris Kelly and Peter there. And if you want to view that interview, including Chris Temple's Elvis-like hair, then go to youtube.com forward slash podcast. You can also see it on Facebook. Just search for Back of the Net. So if you've liked our content over lockdown, really appreciate it. If you're listening to this um, over the weekend that this is being put out, Sunday night is our last interview, probably, with Warren Cummings and Brian Stock. You can watch that over on youtube.com slash AFCB podcast or on Facebook as well. We'll pop the link on our Twitter account and a few of the forums as well so you can remember to get involved. If you've been liking what we're doing, well, we hope to carry it on. You can support us by buying us a coffee at afcbpodcast.com slash coffee. You don't have to. The podcast will always be free. But if you want to lend your support, we really appreciate it. We know who you are. afcbpodcast.com slash coffee. And you're welcome to leave a review as well. Free to do, but uh, it just signals your intent that you'd like to hear more of this kind of stuff so yeah if you want to do that just head to your podcast app and leave a review on there more podcasts will be dropping throughout the forthcoming week as we count down towards the start of the premier league season this mini nine game period it feels like a start doesn't it because we're doing like pre-season friendlies inter club and also a couple of others as well but yeah big times ahead but for now thank you very much for listening to the lockdown interviews
4: Oscar, Oscar, back to Cook having drawn two defenders in Jordan 9 Steve Cook sees the headlines Drives
0: it for goal Spilt and a-